From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Austin, Texas, on this week's edition, ESG and the Impact Learning Curve, a look at the services that are like consumer reports, but for carbon offsets, a conversation with the CEO of carbon recycling company Lanzatech, and on the hunt for startups at South by Southwest. It's the Texas Two-Step, this week on 350. It's March 18th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. We're so glad to have you with us. Joining me once again from Midland Park, New Jersey, resurfacing from the sun and surf and the dive, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Welcome back, Heather. Thank you, Joel. I'm uh, glad to be back. It was great to be out, though. (laughs) I bet. Uh, Yeah. I logged 18 dives in Rotan. Wow. Yeah. And for those of us who are geographically challenged, where is Rotan? It is off uh, the coast of Honduras. It is called is part of the Bay Islands. It's known as a scuba diving mecca, and we saw plenty of turtles and lobsters, and unfortunately, not as many fish as I've seen there in the past. It was a little, little scary, I have to say. I I love diving, and um, I could definitely see some negative impacts on the reef there. I, I was last there four years ago, and there was a Unfortunately, a big change. It's a little, little yeah. scary. Yeah, I've uh, I know people who who have dived in the past couple of years uh, off the Barrier Reef of Australia and just came back and almost in tears. Um, mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. Uh, from people who've been doing it in the past and who know what it used to look like, and you know now it's not like that anymore. It's yeah. almost as if the climate's changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was actually yeah. a, a one of the dives we did. We there was a, a I don't even coral. Uh, I guess it's not a coral. Re- well, maybe it is a coral reforestation. <laughs> but uh, they were they were um, uh, re- rejuvenating and growing uh, the the coral in a couple of areas. Staghorn trying to restart some. So it was uh, nice to see that. But yeah, a little bit uh, disconcerting. But you're in Austin, Austin, Texas. Uh, Hmm. Why could you be in Austin, Texas during this particular week? What what you doing? Well, I kind of gave it away during the intro. Uh, South by Southwest, <laughs> yeah, the annual uh, extravaganza, sort of uh, Burning Man in the city, uh, is taking place. I just made that up. Um, and uh, I was here uh, actually to uh, to support uh, the uh, Shell House, which is uh, one of the, the storefronts taken over by companies. And in this case, uh, Shell uh, had uh, uh, taken over an iconic blues club uh, cr- called Antones on, uh, here on Fifth Street. And um, uh, a number of, of con- events and, and different things taking place uh, that I've, I've moderated. I, I was part of a mentoring session. I was mentoring uh, some some startups, fascinating uh, just companies that are coming to the fore. Obviously, all around energy independence, net zero, and um, uh, you know all of those topics that a company like Shell would be interested in. Uh, they, they have a really interesting, actually, three different programs aimed at startups. I was really I wasn't aware of all that. Uh, really pretty interesting. Um, uh, one called uh, Studio X, which works at actually pre-seed stage companies, so companies that are basically uh, science experiments, or maybe uh, you know two people and a golden retriever and a, and a cool idea. Um, and then there's uh, uh, another one whose name is escaping me. Uh, that's that's more about the uh, taking uh, early stage companies and, and and moving them along. And then there's Shell Ventures, which then invests in a more like a traditional venture capital firm. And uh, I think Changemakers is the uh, the middle middle one, if I'm remembering correctly, something like that. Uh, forgive me, Shell, for not remembering. Um, and so uh, so I had a chance to. Uh, to participate in that and moderate sessions on net zero and on uh, one of my favorite topics on uh, decarbonizing aviation and uh, and then spent the rest of the time running around uh, this lovely city and uh, going to sessions and meeting up with with people just uh, 
this, this you know sort of reminiscent of of our Green Biz conference uh, last month in in Scottsdale. This was the first time. This was actually yeah since twenty nineteen that uh, they had an in person event here at South by Southwest. So there was a lot of glee and people coming together and. This being Texas, not a lot of masks or uh, social distancing. So, uh, uh, but um, hopefully we'll all <laughs> come through this uh, in, in flying colors. Um, but yeah, I went through a lot of sessions, including you know many outside of the sustainability realm. I learned about something called DAO, which is the next thing after NFT. <laughs> NFT being non, uh, yep. non, uh, not non functional, non fungible. No, I think it is non fungible. <laughs> Non-fungible tokens, tokens. Uh, yep. um, but uh, DAO or distributed autonomous organizations. And mm -hmm. it's this uh, mm -hmm. really interesting, uh, fascinating uh, look at, at how uh, organizations, communities, maybe even nations come together and, and transact things, vote, uh, empower one another, make decisions. Uh, it, it's it really a uh, pretty interesting glimpse of the future. <laughs> the panel had three people, two of them. One of them was uh, Elon Musk's brother, Kimball Musk, and the other is uh, one of the one of the uh, women from Pussy Riot, who uh, who's uh, avowed anarchist, which would uh, make this uh, perfect um, to talk about uh, distributed decision making and you know decentralizing uh, power, basically. So yeah, just a week of of, of running around, and uh, I'll, a little bit later in this this the show, uh, I'll I'll talk with Sherry Totoki, our director of startup programs, about her week of uh, going around in, in lots and lots of startup events, well beyond the the, the two or three that I did uh, over at Shell House. Um, and that's her. She was here this week uh, over the weekend. Um, Looking at uh, what startups, uh, what the activities are, and, and where we GreenBiz can fit into that as we grow our our, our startup program. So that was uh, that was interesting as well. So you'll hear from her in a few minutes. So yeah, lots going on, and uh, now we're back, <laughs> or we'll be back by the time uh, this is airing. I'll be back in uh, in, in Oakland and uh, ready to. Uh, not go anywhere for a while. I never thought I'd say that uh, just a few months ago that I'd be ready to stay home for a bit. Uh, but uh, I've been on the road a bunch uh, and so happy to uh, be home and get work done. And so with that, let's uh, consider the week that was with the Week in Review. Okay, I'll get us started, Joel. My first story that I, I was intrigued by this week, not sure I 100% have wrapped my head around it yet, but uh, it was a piece by Henning Stein um, with Invesco, uh, ESG and the Impact Learning Curve. I This was on my mind this week because of some of the pieces I've been reading about the latest washing, the ESG washing <laughs> phrase that that's now creeping into the vernacular um, with with obviously so many of the funds under under evaluation and people questioning the the true value of of the ESG investment movement, but this this piece uh, really I thought did a, a nice job of getting me to think about how to be reading some of these statements and how to be looking at some of these different funds um, and really understanding what impact what does impact mean? I mean, it just it just he does a great job I think of really pushing the envelope and and getting the reader to think about how to look at these different funds. Um, so that I, I know you took a care, uh, care of editing this one and it was, it's a little, it's complex. My head was spinning definitely at certain points, but um, I really think it's a great piece for us all to consider given, just given where the, the disclosure movement is going, just given how much attention is on this right now. And also given um, some of the statements out of, you know, Europe and, and other places that have been questioning how truly impactful ESG is and what it really means um, that the war is the war in Ukraine has definitely raised the, the, the temperature on this dialogue very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this it's really quite simple. What what's going on here is that this is really about what is it? What is impact? How do you define it? How do you measure it? How do you talk about it? 
Uh, because that's one of these words that's come into its own in the past few years. It's not a new word, obviously. And we, people have talked about having impact, but we now have this, this impact funds and impact investors or impact investing. And, and it's become a word that uh, everybody uses and nobody can clearly define. And I think that's part of what was, uh, sounds like, you know, so many other words in the world of sustainability, including, of course, sustainability. Um, and I think that's what Henning was getting. Henning is the global head of thought leadership at Invesco over in, uh, in Europe. And, um, uh, you know, how do we talk about it? You know, because uh, effort does not equal outcomes. And a lot of uh, well-intended funds that are aiming to have an impact don't necessarily have that impact. And yet they call they can call themselves impact fund or talk about high impact or, or likely impact or potentially high impact or impact proven or potentially low impact or any of those things. So we need to standardize that. Investors need to know what they're, you know, first of all, that they're making a difference should they, you know, channel their wealth into uh, investing or philanthropy and, and, uh, these activist ESG funds uh, need to be able to to uh, say with a straight face exactly what their impact is, uh, and it's you know it's like so many other things in this space, it's not easy. And to your point, I mean this is a fast evolving space, so we're expecting that the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, will be issuing draft guidelines on uh, company disclosure uh, as early as next week. Uh, they're meeting, I believe, on Mon- on Monday, Monday, and and they're going to at least uh, uh, they're going to be talking about this. Then they're going to be debating it. It's unclear exactly what is going to come out of that meeting that day, but they're on a path, and so we're going to be seeing a lot more tightening up of disclosure, uh, hopefully standardizing that, maybe simplifying it a little bit, and through that we'll we uh, it, it, you know if if it all goes well, we'll see. Uh, definitions uh, that help, you know, Henning's point here that uh, we need to uh, to know what we're talking about. We talk about impact. And yes, to your other point, it's uh, a lot of this is coming out of uh, out of Europe. Uh, the EU is uh, has, has a war on greenwashing and um, at least on the investor side, uh, at least in investment funds and, and ESG uh, claims. So uh, this is uh, watch this space. It's going to be really interesting to see where this goes, but uh, I love that Henning uh, put a stake in the ground here and uh, and helped us uh, think about what needs to needs to be. But let, let's move over to a different story. Uh, speaking of new things and a stake in the ground, I love Jim Giles, our vice president for Net Zero and who chairs Verge Net Zero. I wrote a piece about uh, new services that are like consumer reports, but for carbon offsets. Now I'm a old consumer reports junkie. My dad actually was the consumer reports junkie. He, he saved, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 years worth of consumer reports because they were reference tools. And and I'll just geek out on consumer reports for a second because it's relevant to this story. The, the beauty of consumer reports, if you've never read it, are not the product ratings. Uh, they do rate products. They say that if you want this TV versus that TV or washer, dryer, or electric toothbrush, or whatever it is, Here's the ones that rise to the top, but those those change. The models change, the features change every, you know, certainly once a year, if not more often, just the way things happen. So you go in the store and you say, I read this article and this is the one that rose to the top. And they say, oh, we don't, that one's out of, out of stock. We don't, they don't make that anymore. And they make this other one. And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, they didn't write about that one. I guess it's okay. Uh, so, but the, the value of Consumer Reports, are not the ratings, it's the article that tells you what to be looking for and how they assess these things. Same with Wirecutter and the New York Times, which is less thorough than Consumer Reports. But it's those articles that really make the difference. And that's why my dad saved Consumer Reports, not to go back and look at the ratings, because he loved to understand how the world worked. And he loved to read the articles about you know what what makes a washer work and how does you had a washing machine and, and how do you think about it from a consumer perspective. So uh, back to uh, current reality here. Jim, Jim Giles wrote this piece about uh, several new services, three of them, in fact, that are looking up, called Calix, Silvera, and B0, that are in the process of rating hundreds or even thousands of offset projects. And they each use a different rating mechanism, mechanism but 
there's a, an overlap among them. Um, and, uh, you know, among other things, they're confirming that a project is additional, meaning that, that its benefits have not already been counted or uh, that it would not have happened without the offset revenue. Um, and, and all of the things that make uh, so far offsets controversial or, or, or dicey or dodgy or sketchy, uh, this is hopefully going to uh, uh, work out that, uh, that universe a little bit. Uh, what did you think about all this? Yeah, so I, I really appreciated this piece as well. I, I think it's a much needed type of service, just with all of the confusion and the debate around the value of different carbon offsets. So it's absolutely something that, that buyers need. I mean, I you know, you could argue, well, we don't want we don't want people to be leaning on carbon offsets as much as they are, but but they are they're out there. People are buying them. We need to make sure that the ones they're buying are are the the ones that, that count. And so I love that the fact that that now large companies and the people that are thinking about investing in these projects have a better way of, of um, you know, looking at them, an independent way, right? Instead of just having the the uh, the folks say, hey, yeah, this is the best project. Um, I think one of the things I took, at, there are two things I took away from the piece. Um, obviously, you're going to have to pay for these services. So like, at least the very detailed versions of them. Um, but uh, I do, it does sound like uh, they're all thinking about like complementary parts of that. So that, you know, sort of the, what do they call it? The, um, you know, the pre- premium, <laughs> the premium version, which we, we, will allow a larger audience of uh, buyers to be, to be looking at some of these ratings and to, you know, to at least get some guidance. So Just the like free- consumer reports, right? You had to, yeah, freemium, well, freemium, you get, like you get some freemium. of it free and then if you want more, you have to pay. Ex- yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, I mean, it's it's good. Um, some good clients, uh, you know, some if you look at uh, Silvera, it looks like they're working already with Bain and Company, Delta Airlines, Cargill. So they, they, they're definitely got, got some momentum. I also appreciated an interesting relationship that the B0 organization has with Patch, which is a startup that's this like trying to... Um, integrate carbon removal purchases like into e-commerce. So Patch is a software company that frankly, I should get to know better. Um, but basically there's an integration now. So if you're using the Patch service, you can you, you get the ratings, like they come in to the system. So that's kind of a really cool integration. So I think this is like for, for me, another example of the sort of the, the digitization of information related to different aspects of sustainability and and the 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 importance of having more data available quickly and that's that's independent and verified so i love it i love i love the fact that they're out there i'm sure there's a lot more um services that are doing this jim just picked the the three that were newer um and i think you know i just think it's it's a something that's time has come for sure yeah, well, it's actually uh, one of the more interesting ones is one that he mentions at the very end that's yet to come. It's sort of a coming attraction called the Carbon Credit Quality Initiative, or CCQI. It's a joint project with uh, WWF, EDF, and the uh, ECO Institute in Freiburg, Germany. Uh, they're developing a, a, their own top-down analysis, and they're going to be looking at how do you measure the impacts on forest restoration, cook stoves that lessen the need for people to cut trees for fuel, uh, and and how do you in capturing methane from landfills, which are three very common offset kinds of projects? Uh, so they're measuring, you know, they're they're studying and, and developing protocols on how you measure that and what are the various factors you you need to uh, understand to very you know to uh, accurately count the offsets. Uh, this is the growing up of uh, industry that you know again, sort of like we were talking about with impact investing that just hasn't had the rigor it's needed to really do the job that needs to be done. So yeah, this is a, a, a really cool and exciting uh, initiative. But let's go to another cool and exciting initiative and one that I have a little uh, more than a little personal passion for these days. Uh, this comes from our senior writer, CJ Klaus. Uh, its uh, headline is the next tool in the, in the climate toolbox, your park DV. And this is about something that we've been talking about, oh, Gosh, I mean, Rocky Mountain Institute started talking about this maybe 
10, 15, maybe 20 years ago. It's been a long, long uh, wind up here, which is basically um, how uh, electric vehicles, when they're parked, become a, uh, a, a platform for uh, storage, uh, energy storage that can be up- uploaded into buildings, in this case, your home. Um, and she talks about, uh, CJ talks about a uh, company she visited over in the Brooklyn Navy Yard that's uh, on the banks of New York East River, a company uh, called Fermata Energy that's uh, developed software to enable EVs to supply energy to the buildings uh, right next to it. And I'll tell you why this is a personal passion. You do not know this, Heather, and uh, nobody else really does either. But I, uh, two things. One, just installed solar and storage at my house in Oakland. Uh, and, and wait, there's more. I just put down a down payment for a Tesla 3. So um, what's what's interesting about that, uh, and the reason I'm bringing that up is because this the, the storage uh, that's uh, installed on the side of my house now is um, uh, 16 kilowatt hours. It's, uh, it's enough to drive, you know, a good chunk of the house for uh, maybe uh, a few days, at least, you know, it's just limiting the things like the freezers, uh, refrigerator, and, and a few internet and a few other necessary things. So 16 kilowatt hours. Uh, the car is going to have, I think, uh, 75 to 82, I forget exactly, kilowatt hour battery. So it's going to be, what is that, uh, you know, five times the, the, the storage that, that's uh, sitting on the side of, of my house. And that makes it a really compelling opportunity to, again, to power, power the house. Now, how you plug your car into the house in a way to take energy out is, I think, where a lot of the trick is. And that's uh, bidirectional charging, is called. And that's what Fermata is, is talking about here. So that's uh, finally that's coming into the marketplace. And it's, uh, it's about time. So I have to ask first, are you going to keep your old car or are you going to get rid of it? <laughs> no, I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of it. I got a 10 uh, year old uh, mini Cooper convertible that I love. And uh, it was hoping, hoping, hoping that, that the good folks at mini were going to make a electric version of that. I was holding out for it um, and uh, they didn't. And, you know, I, <laughs> you didn't ask this, but I'll forgive me a little tangent here. I, I, I didn't like any of the EVs that I looked at. I looked, You can go on a website and find all the EVs that are coming out between now and, say, 2025. And there's none that I would really want to drive. There's a lot of minivans and trucks and just regular old sedans. And, um, you know, I, I went with the tried and true uh, the Tesla. It's, you know, everybody I know who has one loves them. And so uh, that was not actually my first choice. Sorry, Elon, but um, it's the one I decided to, to get. And I, I'm sure when it comes, uh, I think next month, I will be thrilled with it. So, and thank you for answering that. And back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> but Verma, Verma, <laughs> Sorry, Vermata, enough about you know, me and so, my... Uh... No, no, no. I, 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 I want to go back to your point of this stuff has been talked about for years and years and years. And Fermata is interesting because they basically were like, whoa, this can't happen. We can't, we don't have the right charger to do this. Okay, we're going to go out and develop it. <laughs> so they, they basically went out and really just kind of drove the innovation to make this happen. They got some, they've gotten some... Um, one of the reasons we've we're picked we picked these folks to focus on is they just got a hundred million in, in funding. Um, they are they've got some interesting relationships. They're they're very focused uh, on building relationships with fleets. And so even though the they're testing this on the the the, the lab, the new lab, um, I think that's what it's called at um, as you mentioned, but. It, they're not just focusing on homes. They they definitely feel like there's a commercial potential for this. They're approaching um, owners of fleets in order to help them understand the value proposition of doing this. For 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 example, at like a campus, a corporate campus, or at uh, municipal buildings. Um, so they're very focused on that, which I think is 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 worthwhile. Um, and they have some some like I said, in some some intriguing relationships. They've got, uh, you know, I think National Grid is, is one of their partners as well as Rebel and and so forth. So I I, I love um, the the focus on this. I love I love that this is kind of coming through finally. It is um, very early stage still, but you know who who knows? CJ CJ is really good at at identifying you know early stage startups. In fact, 
uh, I will just plug the interview you'll hear in a moment with uh, the Lanzatech CEO, Jennifer Holmgren. She uh, also contributed that feature this week. And I just, yeah, I think this is a company worth watching. Um, they have good relations. You know, the other relationship I should mention is is with Nissan and the Nissan Leaf. They've absolutely very tightly integrated there. And that's that's important as well. So yeah, cool company. I'm I'm so jealous of you. That's that's great on your uh, on your your setup there. And I I will admit that that the uh, I will admit that the reason we haven't invested in an EV yet is partly what you were describing. Is my husband just can't get get over not liking any of the models that he's seen. It's just it's a little scary. But anyway, well, that's not yeah. Well, well, well. I mean, privileged. I can't imagine that Joe hasn't at least taken a look at the. Uh, uh, forthcoming uh, uh, the Ford F one fifty Spark, I think it's called, or the uh, Chevy Silverado uh, EV, uh, because those um, uh, are going to be, uh, you know, again, huge batteries that you can use not just to do the the construction job on site or whatever you're doing on site, but again, also to to plug in uh, as needed for backup power. And uh, I know the kind of work he does, uh, you know, having that kind of van or truck is, is probably going to be important. Uh, this is the future. This is, there's no question that these technologies are going to become mainstream, whether whether uh, Fermata is the company that takes us across the finish line with TBD. But it, just let me geek out for one more minute on this. I think what's, what's really important about this is that in buying electricity, we, there's something, you know, electricity tends to be tiered, such so as the first amount of energy you buy is one price, the next level is another price, and, and maybe there's a third level that's the highest price. And the more you can shave those peaks that, that cut the, those top usage bars uh, by plugging into uh, storage, in, whether it's uh, attached to your house or sitting in your garage or in your driveway, uh, the more you can, uh, uh, as they call it, shave the peak cut your energy bills, but it also requires uh, the, the utility to have less standby power. Uh, so this is actually uh, a huge part, a significant part of the new grid and the much more complex interactive grid that we're going to be seeing. Again, we've been talking about this for uh, easily uh, two decades, and it's great to see it's finally coming. The only reservation I have, Joel, about what's going on right now is that I'm not seeing the the connection to communities that that don't own vehicles, that that people that take public transit, how do you or that don't own a home, like what? How do you benefit from that? Like what you were just talking about with those electricity rates. That's it. Seems like a very it's a model for for the privileged of us that can actually own these resources. And I I wonder how those benefits will be available to renters and to communities that haven't been benefiting from the clean energy movement that we, that we, you know, that really need to. So. Yeah. And I went to a session on exactly that topic here at South by Southwest. And there was a, a woman named Salika Talbot uh, who teaches at, uh, seems to be teaching at a lot of different schools and an author and a consultant uh, who is, uh, uh, talks about uh, the impact of, of, of mobility, including uh, the ability to put, you know, where do you put chargers in, in low-income communities? You can't just put them anywhere and check the box. And they're, they're generally, you know, they put them where, there's a chicken-egg thing here. They put them where the cars are, which are generally not in industrial or low-income communities. Um, and uh, and so form follows function or something like that, where if you're not putting the chargers there, no one's going to want one and no one's going to want one. They're not, there's going to be no need for chargers. So yes, you absolutely uh, this needs to be uh, well beyond the likes of you and me and, and other people with the means to, to buy these things. That is also very much a work in progress. If you'd like to find out whether Dr. Jennifer Holmgren can do something, just try telling her that you can't. Holmgren is the CEO of Lanzatech. It's a carbon recycling company that captures greenhouse gases from industrial smokestacks, agriculture, and landfills, and converts those gases into ethanol, which is used by its partners to make a whole bunch of different products, from dishwashing liquid and household cleaners, to packaging, to clothes. Uh, let me say that again, give you a bit of an example. 
lens attacks process can take the nasty plant warming gases that would otherwise be belched out of a steel mill smokestack and make a czar address out of them. Surprising? Well, surprising people is pretty much Holmgren's M.O. The 61-year-old chemist has spent her career doing things other people didn't expect. She managed to convince the higher-ups at her former company, UOP Honeywell, which develops technology for the petroleum and petrochemical industries to invest in biofuel research. She was also one of the first to figure out how to fly a plane on fuel made from alternative feedstocks, things like animal fats and algae and camelina. That's a seed similar to flax. And over the last decade, she has steered Skokie, Illinois-based Lanza Tech from little-known startup to carbon recycling powerhouse. Lanzatech's chief sustainability officer, Freya Burton, who's worked with Holmgren for more than 10 years, describes her as both an empathetic and nurturing boss and a passionate and driven leader. But Holmgren's true superpower may just be that unflinching ability to surprise people. She has a penchant for taking unexpected risks, and she regularly sips on the sweet nectar of proving people who doubt her wrong. I'm CJ Klaus, and I recently spoke with Jennifer Holmgren a couple of times about her journey, her career, alternative aviation fuels, Lanza Tech, all that good stuff. The segment features highlights from those conversations. For more of the story, check out my written Q&A with Holmgren up on the Green Biz website as we speak. Here we go. Jennifer Rosa Salem was born in Colombia. I grew up on the coast in Barranquilla. So if you or your kids have seen the movie Encanto, you know, the dancing, the vallenato, as we call it, the music and the culture, that's what I grew up in. Did you have a magical house? I didn't have a magical house. Unfortunately, there was no Encanto associated, but (laughs) the music and the food, it was all the same as the movie. Fascinated by science from a young age, Jennifer breathlessly followed the progress of the U.S. space program. I was, you know, seven, eight, nine, right? Because we landed on the moon at nine. And I remember how excited I was about that. And I remember always waiting for my uncle to come home with the newspaper and opening it up to an update of the Apollo program, tossing it on the floor and just leaning forward. And I would read all about the Apollo program, you know, just following along, following along. What what next? What next? Then in 1969, the very same year the Apollo astronauts landed on the moon, Jennifer and her family landed in the United States. Her father worked as an engineer for the Colombian airline, Aviana, and they'd asked him to transfer to a new facility in Los Angeles. Jennifer went to public school there in L.A. and was encouraged by both her family and her teachers to pursue her interest in science. In the 1980s, she set off for Harvey Mudd College, a small liberal arts science and engineering university in Claremont, California. She studied chemistry and met the love of her life, a physics student named Don Holmgren. They married the day before graduation and moved to Illinois to pursue PhDs at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She got hers in chemistry, he got his in physics. She then went to work in a lab in Des Plaines for a company called UOP that would later be acquired by Honeywell. You know, the ones that were developing technology for the petroleum and petrochemical industries. She worked there for more than a decade and then became the company's director of exploratory research in 2002. And that's when she began pitching the idea of bio-based chemicals and fuels. At the time, there were very few people talking about biology or climate change. Energy transition was not a thing. And so you can imagine that was a painful transition to make because, you know, the only alternative that people could imagine was actually natural gas. You know, that's an alternative. Jennifer, go over there. She found some pretty critical support at the top of the company, a few people with a bit of vision. But that sort of demissiveness from her co-workers and colleagues, a cadre of fossil fuel devotees, was frustratingly common. It was a skip level thing. You know, it, you had to go high in the organization. At, at kind of my level, everybody thought this was a bit of a joke. Still, by 2006, she'd convinced the higher-ups to create and let her lead a renewable energy and chemicals division. 
Soon, Holmgren's research caught the attention of the U.S. military, and she and her team began developing aviation biofuels for military jets. And actually, it was really funny. I got a phone call from a program manager at DARPA. That's the U.S. Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And I didn't know him, but he said, Jennifer, I hear you're working on diesel. Can you make renewable jet fuel? And I said, well, yeah, if you can make renewable diesel, you can make renewable jet fuel. And everybody at the time said, you're never going to fly on an alternative aviation fuel. It's just not going to happen because their oxygenates or their biological feedstocks will never allow you to have the energy density that you need for flight. And so he had set down the challenge that he wanted to drop in jet fuel. And so we started working on that. That was in 2006. And by 2010, I was working with Boeing and we had flown in a New Zealand flight, a Japan Airlines flight and a continental flight. And then on Earth Day 2010, we flew the Green Hornet. So it went supersonic on. It was a 50-50 blend of conventional jet fuel and chemolina oil-based kerosene, to be exact you know, alternative aviation fuel. And I remember thinking to myself, in less than five years, we went from it can't be done to flying a supersonic jet. Given the height she'd soared to, Holmgren surprised people yet again when she up and left UOP Honeywell the same year to become the first CEO of a tiny startup called Lanzatech. I should add, Holmgren wasn't planning on jumping ship. She had something else in mind something a lot of people might find surprising considering her success and that she was only 50 years old at the time. Beaten a margarita. Yep, she was planning on sailing into the sunset with her husband and her dogs, but she couldn't resist Lanzatech's call because Dr. Sean Simpson, the company's co-founder and driving force, had made a game-changing discovery, a microbe that ingests greenhouse gases and produces ethanol. Realizing the various limitations of other feedstocks, Holmgren saw the company's technology as a potential climate solution. Honestly, I was going to be 50 and I was getting ready to retire and I had developed some really exciting technologies at, at UOP Honeywell, but the petroleum industry uses 100 million barrels of petroleum every day, okay? 100 million barrels. And we measure the yearly production of alternative fuels in tens of million gallons a year. There is definitely the ability to grow land-based plants to make biofuels, but not that level, right? You know that eventually you're going to run into a land issue, a food issue, a water issue. And so I kept wondering how we're going to get to scale. My PhD thesis was on Fischer-Tropsch catalysis, which is on using carbon monoxide and hydrogen to make products. And I thought, holy shit, if, if, you know, this works... It's not just a concept that will work in a steel mill that has carbon monoxide. This will work with any off-gas from a steel mill or a refinery. It will work with gasified solids. It's going to work with everything. And I thought to myself, I'm looking at a technology that if it is successful, and it wasn't a given that it would be at that time, can change everything. And so I thought, well, I got to do this. <laughs> you know, I got to figure out if, if this works. And so I did. This is how Lanzatech does it. Instead of fermenting sugar, we ferment three critical gases, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and hydrogen. So we okay. have an organism that likes to eat that stuff, and what it makes is ethanol. We go find those gases, uh, like at a steel mill, they have carbon monoxide aplenty, and mm -hmm. normally goes out the flue as carbon dioxide. We just basically plug into that flue stack, and before it goes out and gets combusted and burned, we pump it into a bioreactor. And in that bioreactor is a bacteria, that's our bacteria, and it eats it, and it makes beer. It makes ethanol. So basically, Lanzatech had two research divisions, the aviation fuels and the everyday products. They chose to focus on these two areas because the other fossil fuel-based markets already had solutions. Energy would eventually transition to renewables like wind and solar, and cars would eventually go electric. But what about all the other petroleum-based products that we use every day, all the plastics and polyester? There weren't large markets of clear alternatives for those. And what about airplanes? It's going to be a long time before you can put a battery on a plane to help it run on solar and get across the Atlantic or across the Pacific. 
Those two divisions existed side by side until 2020, when the decision was made to spin out the fuels piece, Holmgren's baby, and arguably the company's crown jewel, to form Lancejet. We wanted it to go faster, really, really fast. But wait, hold on a minute. She loved aviation since she was a kid. First of all, you've already figured out aviation is my first love, right? My father worked for an airline. You know, we developed um, aviation fuel when I was at UOP Honeywell, and we did it again at Lancet Tech. I think aviation license to operate will depend on their ability to reduce their carbon emissions. And therefore, that social license and my love for the industry says, we got to make this go fast. We've got to make this work. This is really, really important. Financed in part by a recent $50 million investment from the Microsoft Climate Innovation Fund, Lancejet is now building its first commercial production plant in Soperton, Georgia. It expects to have the facility up and running in 2023. So we're on a path to building plants in the next few years with our partners to have hundreds of millions of gallons of production capacity by the middle of this decade. And I think you also know our first partner really? was actually Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're we're on it. <laughs> we're on it. You know, our partners are already working on, on their commercial plants. We're already working on some of those. Look at Suncor's statements about scaling aviation fuel. Look at Shell, who's partnered with us on a project in Sweden. We're going to refine CO2 with power and we're going to make jet fuel. And our partner are Vattenfall, the power company, Shell, and um, uh, SAS as an airline. So they're all committed to building plants, and they're on a schedule to build them by the 2025, 2026 timeframe. There'll be hundreds of millions of gallons. Yeah. So do you see planes being able to run 100% on alternative fuels at some point? The Indian companies and the airplane manufacturers, right, you see Boeing and Airbus working on getting to 100%. We're certified up to 50%. But the problem to get to 100% is not the equipment. The problem is how do we get to 100 billion gallons of jet fuel, right? I said we're in the 20, 30 million. So right now what we need to do is build production faster, which is frankly why we spun out Lancet. Everybody, again, said this is nuts, right? We keep this as the jewel in your crown. Holding it tight, it means it goes slowly. We let it go, it goes fast. And our goal is to have more than a billion gallons of production capacity of sustainable aviation fuel by the end of the decade. So hundreds of millions, middle of the decade, billion by the end of the decade. And we're on a path and we're going to do it. Now, there's something else I was wondering about. I know a lot of people, and for good reason, don't believe oil companies and airlines and other big polluters should have a seat at the table. They believe we should just stop. Stop burning fossil fuels as soon as possible, and that's it. Stop driving gas-powered cars. Stop flying. And I get it. I've had plenty of zombie apocalypse fantasies where we're all forced to go back to the way life used to be, living in small, tight-knit communities, growing our own food, with the one modern caveat of a few solar panels and wind turbines to keep some lights on and a stove, maybe a blender. But in the meantime, what happens? And what does Holmgren say to people who simply don't trust the fossil fuel industrial complex, again, for really, really good reasons, and don't believe anything? good will ever come out of partnering with polluters. The problem, I think, is that people don't tend to think about technology and how it grows and spreads, right? In 2010, we were making fun of solar and wind and saying it'll never be impactful. And now you can't turn around without seeing an installation. And and that's kind of the problem with new technology, right? It feels like it's not making a lot of progress except for the people that are in the trenches. And then it goes. That's about to happen with electric cars, isn't it? Exactly. It was tested. Tesla, you know, toiling in the background, having people make fun of them and say, well, that car is powered by coal, so it's actually worse. I don't believe in unicorns pooping fairy dust flying through the sky. I'm not going to magically get to a world where people are not using fossil carbon. If we did, we'd be back in the dark ages because, frankly, everything in our lives is made from fossil carbon. And, you know, I think most people don't realize where their stuff comes from. And I do believe it's important to use less. I believe it's important for companies who have been the heavy polluters to do more of the heavy lifting. 
anything, I think they have to, and they're in a position to do so. But I don't think we're going to magically disappear carbon emissions. And so instead, I think we need to focus on making alternative paths, just like electric vehicles are an alternative path. But frankly, don't kid yourself. That electric vehicle, which is not driving on fossil carbon, is equipped with a dash that is made from fossil carbon, wheels that are made from fossil carbon, seats and seatbelts that are made from fossil carbon. So let's not lie to ourselves about where everything comes from. Just need to change everything. We need a new carbon economy. And the polluters need to contribute to making that happen. And so that's why there are partners, because I'll give them a seat at the table as long as they're willing to step up and make it So Lanzatech continues to partner with companies to make everyday products. And just last week, the company said it plans to go public by merging with a special purpose acquisition company called AMCI Acquisition Corp in a deal that values Lanzatech at $2.2 billion. Lanzajet, in the meantime, is working with its partners on building alternative jet fuel capacity. And Holmgren? Considering that she was eyeing retirement more than a decade ago, what's she thinking now? Will she stick around another 10? I'm not going to be around for 10 years. This is not another 10-year exercise. There will be better people than me that will take it over. We've gotten the company to a point where other people can run it as well. So I'm looking forward to that margarita after. And there you have it. I'm CJ Klaus for GreenBiz 350. I'd like to thank Jennifer Holmgren and Freya Burton. The awesome music featured on this segment is by Lobo Loco. See you next time. One of the many themes here at South by Southwest are startups, uh, these startup competitions. Just about everywhere you look and lots of young companies trying to emerge from the heap. Sherry Totoki, our Director of Startup Programs here at GreenBiz, uh, has been here in Austin for much of the week and uh, to talk a little bit about uh, what she's been seeing. Hey, Sherry. Hey, Joel. So uh, why did you come here in the first place to Austin? What were you hoping to find? Yeah, well, as the Director of Startup Programs, you know, I wanted to come and check out the startup programming track. Uh, South by Southwest is doing a lot of really unique and innovative um, things to support startups. So they have pitch competitions, they have mentor sessions, they have networking. And I really just wanted to see how we could further support startups in our programming and, and how South, South by Southwest was doing that. So uh, what did you find? What, what, what impressed you? Uh, what could we do that they're doing or do better? Yeah, a lot, a lot. Um, we, I, I attended several pitch competitions. I attended the pitch awards ceremony. I attended some mentoring sessions and networking sessions. And there's a lot that they can do with convening partners. And we are conveners as well at GreenBiz. And I think that we can do things that South by Southwest um, is doing, such as their pitch competitions. They have nine different pitch competitions and a large award ceremony at the end. And it's really exciting. It's really just fun to get everyone together and to get everyone galvanized around these new and innovative technologies. And we're seeing a lot of the same things at GreenBiz all around climate tech. And I think we can bring the same things to our community and to our audiences. Did you see a lot of uh, corporations, uh, larger companies that were involved with these pitch competitions uh, or they stayed uh, more on the sidelines? Yeah, I think the other interesting thing about South by Southwest is just the amount of stakeholders and networks brought together here. So investors were a big part of it. Corporates were a big part of it. There were several panels around corporates and startups working together. There were um, panels of investors and corporates that were actually judging the pitch competitions. So it's really this integration of all of these networks to really create a support system for the entire ecosystem. So uh, climate tech, uh, that's uh, what we focus on, obviously. Did you see much of that around? Yeah, you know, climate tech is definitely a part of the conference here. I think it's, you know, one of many tracks at South by Southwest. South by has so much going on. There's a lot with tech and with NFTs and a lot of new technologies and, and climate is just one of those. But it's been great to see, you know, at least some infusion of that at South by. Um, I've heard a lot of intentional ways that South by is thinking about sustainability, such as intentionally not giving out swag and intentionally not giving out a pamphlet. And I think that's really um, a unique model. And I think it's a great way that they can, 
that there are being leaders in this industry. And I think that we at Greenpeace are doing similar things that um, that we're really proud of and that we bring to our conferences. So did you see any startups that uh, that really impressed you? Yeah, there are a lot of, of innovative technologies. One that was really interesting that really was marrying kind of the, the climate justice aspect, I think that came up a lot at this conference as well, is a uh, sustainable homes for homeless um, encampments throughout Austin. And he used sustainable materials that were long lasting, um, that you know would last 20, 30 years. You don't have to keep um, remaking these models. And it was also serving a population and working with the communities and working with the, the mayors of these cities um, to provide housing. So I thought that was a really uh, unique model. And he was also making it um, making it look really good so making it look sleek so that folks you know are folks are open to having it around and it's just very um inclusive in the way that he thought about the entire design i was impressed with some of the uh, manufacturing technologies including for uh for some uh, mobility solutions uh uh there's one company called arrival that's that's uh, i'm not sure if you're familiar with them that are building micro factories around the world to to to, to build cars uh it just seems uh you know, like for fifty million dollars, as opposed to a, several billion dollars, you can you can build a, a car factory. That seemed like a novel idea. Anything that just sort of really rocked your world in terms of uh, what could be and what needs to uh, really really be propagated. I don't know if there is something in particular that was one particular company, but it was really just the way that all of these different types of organizations are coming together. So having folks that are working on the sustainable development goals, working with Amazon Climate Pledge, working with startups directly, working with governments, it's really that there's the entire world is starting to pay attention to climate issues and come together to solve them. And I think that's been very enlightening and, and really positive and, and inspiring to see. Well, you can hear uh, South by Southwest happening all around us uh, here on the streets uh, in Austin. Uh, what's what's going to be uh, when you get back to the office on Monday morning? Uh, the, the the one thing that you really want to share with everybody uh, about what you learned here in Austin? Oh my gosh, there is so much to share. I think it's really again just a convergence of technology and art and people and new climate issues and startups, it's really just thinking about these innovative ways of coming together and new ways of providing content and value to our audience and not just startups, but other corporates in the climate space and really thinking through how can we build solutions together and take action to help to solve the climate crisis. And there's so much about that here. I'm really looking forward to bringing that to the team. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, more about what you learned. And yeah, that's uh, there is, there's quite a bit of collaboration, partnerships, and all around uh, making the world, uh, you know, safe for people and, and, and the rest of the species. So thank you for sharing that with us. Sherry Totoki is the Director of Startup Programs here at GreenBiz, uh, sitting here in the middle of the action in Austin. Thank you, Joel. Thanks for having me. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're over on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven of them and they're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you can sign up. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your comments, questions and tips at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week diving in with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 